Well, let me invite you for the last time to take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes. We are wrapping up our series this morning in chapter 12. If you want to use one of the blue Bibles in front of you, it's on page 623. 623. And this morning we are looking at Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. It has been a journey, hasn't it? So one of the things that I would encourage you to do, whenever we wrap up series, I find it helpful for myself, but also as a way to, to hear what God is doing in others. Just as you're talking to one another, ask, ask, what has God shown you through Ecclesiastes? What have you learned? Where have you been challenged? Where have you been helped? Um, it's a great way to kind of internalize and hold on to the things that he's done in your life as we walk through this book. So Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, after spending the last few months in this book, I thought about, at first I was like, man, that's going to be a little strange that we're going to still be doing Ecclesiastes in the month of December during Advent. Something that when I, before we started, that felt a little jarring and disconnected to me. But the longer we've been in this book, and now as we come to the end, I am convinced that Ecclesiastes is actually a great book for Advent. Part of the reason is, think about some of the lines that we just sang together. Are you waiting in your sorrows for this broken world to heal? A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Ecclesiastes is a book that has helped us take an honest look at the sorrows of this broken and weary world. It shows us just how far the curse is found in this life under the sun. The preacher has exposed how everything in this life is hevel. That word translated vanity. It's, it's fleeting. It's out of our control, and it's mysterious. Every single day, we experience the futility of life under the sun. And he's taught us that trying to figure out life and make it go the way we want is like striving after or trying to shepherd the wind. You just can't do it. Ecclesiastes has shown all of us this, and it has also, I hope, awakened or deepened in us a longing for Jesus to come and make all things new. 
that as it's exposed this world and its problems and perplexities, all of its challenges and heartaches and all this confusion that we just can't get our minds around, I hope there's something stirring in your heart saying, there's a better place. There's a better life. There's a better world. I know it and I want it. A longing for him to come and heal all that is broken, both in the world and in us. That's what we are eagerly waiting for. But, until that day, Ecclesiastes doesn't just help us wait with eagerness, it helps us walk with wisdom. It unmasks all the pretend pleasures that promise us satisfaction and meaning in life and then let us down. It shows us how all of them are dead ends that lead nowhere. And instead, the book has revealed the path of wisdom that leads us to true joy. It reminds us that life is not gained to be seized, but a gift to be received and enjoyed from our Creator. And though we can't understand all that God is doing, and we often can't make life look the way we want, we can eat our bread with joy and drink our wine with a merry heart. We can rejoice in our toil and enjoy life with the wife whom we love, because that is the portion God has given to us. Now today, we come to the last words of the book. Now if you remember last week, we saw the preacher's final words. There's, there's been a shift. This is most likely not the preacher speaking anymore, because he refers to him in the third person. So here, we most likely have the closing words of an editor. And he's going to do two things. First, he'll testify to the wisdom of the preacher's words. And then he'll affirm and summarize the preacher's message. So again, we have just two points this morning. You can go ahead and throw those up. Really simple. In verses 9 to 11, we're going to talk about the words of the wise. And in verses 12 to 14, the way of wisdom. Simple outline for a complicated book. So let's look first at the words of the wise. Look back at verse 9. It says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. All right, in these verses, I think we see three things here. We see who this preacher is, we see what he did, and what kind of words it was that he wrote. So first, see who the preacher was and what, what he did. Now, if you buy a book today, if you go to, I was going to say a bookstore, but let's be honest, nobody goes to a bookstore. If you're on Amazon and you're looking at a book, what's, what's on the back cover of almost every book? It's endorsements, right? It's other people saying, oh, this book is really good. And this author, man, he nailed it this time. You, you've got to read this book. This, it's unbelievable how he says things in here. This is a must read. Well, guess what we have here? Same thing. Now, there were no back covers at this time. So what they would do instead is they would include their endorsements as an afterword at the end of the scroll. And so as we look at this afterword, what do we see? We see the editor endorsing the author, telling us, yeah, this guy, you should listen to him. First, he calls him wise. Now, it's important to remember that wisdom in the Old Testament is, is not just theories. It's not just abstract information. Like, he, he's got a lot of stuff floating around in his brain. 
It means practical wisdom. It's knowing how to make the most out of life. It's some combination of street smarts and experience and understanding how the world really works. It's knowing what life is about and shaping your life according to that reality. And he's saying that's who the preacher is. That's, that's what he embodies. He is wise. In fact, if you remember all the way back in chapter 1, we saw he wasn't just wise, he was the wisest. Here's what he said back in chapter 1. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, okay, if I'm looking for wisdom on how to live in this broken and sin-cursed world, I've come to the right guy. This is the right place because this preacher is wise. But he goes on and says the preacher didn't hoard this wisdom. He didn't just stockpile it and lock it away and keep it to himself. He gave it away to others. He taught the people knowledge. That's what we have here. So that's what that means. He's still teaching today. This wise preacher this very morning is teaching us knowledge. Well, how did he teach? What does it say? He weighed, studied, and arranged many proverbs with great care. So let's, let's think about what, what is he saying here. Well, just like today, back in this time, there were lots of things floating around claiming to be wisdom. I don't know if they were all written on scrolls. Probably a lot of them were word of mouth. They were sayings passed down. Lots of things trying to say, this is a good idea. This is a right way to live. So one of the things he does first is he weighs all of that. He gathers this wisdom that's out there and he carefully evaluates it to see, is this really wisdom? He does a test on each, that checks out, that doesn't. That checks out, that doesn't. So he's weighing it. Then after he's, he's done that, he, he studies the different wisdoms, saying, I, I need to understand them thoroughly. And then after he's done these two things, he arranges them with great care. Now this might seem like a strange inclusion. Like who cares what, how you arrange them. But this is really important because he took the time to figure out the best way to present this wisdom. He didn't just blast us with a bunch of random information, helter-skelter all over the place. Instead, he lays out his wisdom in a clear and orderly way. Now, if you've ever had a teacher in school who did not do that, you know just how important this is, right? Those teachers that they, maybe they were really intelligent, but they just were constantly throwing information at you, and, but you couldn't follow what in the world are they trying to get across to me? There was no order or arrangement or flow to what they were saying. And he's saying, I don't want to be that kind of teacher. I want to carefully arrange this so as to be most helpful to my learners. Think about how he began and ended. Um, if you want to go ahead, there's another slide up here. I think that's got the outline of the book. There you go, thank you. To kind of consider how he carefully arranged it. We showed this the very first week. Think about how he structured this. He's got this balance to the book where there's a comment made at the beginning and then there's this editor at the end. He starts, the preacher starts and ends 
with this theme, all is vanity or all is hevel. He bookended it. He wants us to show everything I'm going to say in between here is on this idea. Then he had a poem both at the front and the back. First one's about the cyclical nature of time. One generation comes and another generation goes. And everything, there's nothing new under the sun. And he closes with, and here's what that looks like on a personal level. How we grow old and die. And in between there, he says, I'm going to investigate life. I'm going to try to figure out what is worthwhile and good. And then the second half of the book, he said, here's what I found. And along the way, you've noticed there's been repeated themes, repeated questions, phrases like striving after the wind, who can know, man can't find out. All this to show like he was intentionally and carefully ordering and structuring this book. And he did it to help us. Then we find out more here about the preacher's words of wisdom. Not only are they carefully arranged, I love this. It's, it says they're also words of delight. This means he didn't just write clearly, he wrote beautifully. He didn't merely state wisdom baldly, just this is a fact. Instead, he used vivid words to paint pictures that wiggle their way into our hearts and minds and lodge there immovably. In fact, one, one quote I came across is from an award-winning author who is an atheist, so keep that in mind. This is not a, a Christian at all, a self-purported atheist. He read Ecclesiastes, and here's what he said about Ecclesiastes. He called it the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. The greatest single piece of writing I have known. That's pretty, pretty high praise. And we see that, right? We see that this is a, a book chock full of imagery and, and symbolism. He uses language like, to everything there is a season. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. He has set eternity in man's heart. A living dog is better than a dead lion, which was my favorite. He didn't say... At last week, I think it was, or two weeks ago, he could have just said, before you die, no, no, that's, that's too direct. He says, before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken, he found words of delight that weren't merely correct, but they were pleasing to the ear. But they weren't only clearly ordered, they, and they weren't just flowery gibberish, they're also words of truth. You see that? He found words of truth. In other words, they line up with reality. It doesn't just sound nice. It's true. He didn't say what he thought people wanted to hear. He told us what really is. He didn't dilute it or water things down. He didn't alter the message to make it more palatable or popular. Instead, he simply told the truth about life under the sun. Which brings us to verse 11, where we see what these words of delight and truth do. Look at verse 11. He says, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So because he didn't delude anything, because he simply told the truth, we see that the words of the wise do two things for us. They spur us and they secure us. They spur us and they secure us. And so just, this isn't the preacher, but he's kind of like 
taking on the preacher's view here. He's saying like, okay, you want to paint some pictures? I'll paint some pictures too. So he uses two word pictures to explain these ideas. So first he compares the words of the wise to goads. Now goads are not distant cousins of toads. They are in fact sharp sticks used by shepherds to guide the sheep or, or drive oxen. So they sharpen them to a point and they've got this really pointy end and when the cattle or sheep or whatever they're driving would go astray, they would use it to poke it to get the stubborn ones moving. Or if they start to go the wrong way, they'd poke it to get it to turn back in the right way. And sometimes, Ecclesiastes has been like that, hasn't it? It's been a little pokey. Poking us in places we'd rather not be poked to get our attention or to turn us out from some bad roads and lead us back into the right way saying up oh, don't go there get get back it steers us away from looking for satisfaction in money or things or pleasure it spurs us to remember our creator and when we start to think oh i've got all the time in the world i've got life in front of me it prods us to remember life is short and death is certain so these pokes don't always feel good but the goads of Ecclesiastes spur us to follow the path of wisdom. So let me ask you this morning, does the Bible ever spur you with its sharpness? Does it ever poke a little bit more than you wish it would? Does it ever cause you to turn in a different direction? Like I, I was doing this and then I read this passage and I realized I need to come back this way. Or I was going to choose this and I, I went the other way instead. Does it affect your choices? After reading the Bible, do you ever find yourself thinking, you know, I don't, I don't think I should do that anymore. Or, I did that and I think I need to go apologize for that. Does the Bible ever prod you to do something that you know you should, but maybe you just haven't been lately? In other words, what I'm asking you is, does the Bible actually direct the way you live? Does it really guide you? Or is it just some nice promises that make you feel better about sin and give you some comfort when you consider death? I hear people say all the time, it's common verbiage in the Christian world, oh, the Lord is leading me to do this. And so one of the things I often ask people when they say the Lord is leading me to do this I say, that's great. What verse is he using to do that? And they look at me blankly, like, what, what are you asking me? Because we've made the Lord's leading to be something mysterious and mystical and unexplainable. Something that only the one experiencing it can know. Now, while I won't deny that God can and does sometimes lead in that way, the ordinary and most common way he should be leading us is by following his words. We don't need another word from the Lord. What we need is to follow the wise words he's given us in his book. The words of the wise in our Bible are given by one shepherd. They are the shepherd's means to change the direction we're going or to prod us onward in the right path. 
One of the ways our shepherd leads us to green pastures of peace or to still waters of rest is by spurring us with his wise words like goads. So that's one thing his words do. They, they spur us. But the words of the wise also secure us. They are like nails firmly fixed. So picture something in your head that's just nailed down tight. I mean, it's got a big old nail driven all the way in. It's not going anywhere. It's secure. It's strongly held. Now, I'm asking a lot here, but if you can, think all the way back to our first sermon in Ecclesiastes. Maybe this will jog your mind. At the very beginning of the series, I, I talked about a writer who kept trying to hang pictures on his wall using command strips. You remember this? And he, would, he thought this was the greatest invention ever. He just came across these, so he's slapping them on the back of everything all over his apartment. He was a single guy at the time. And so he's putting them up. But no matter how good it, he's like, man, that looks good. But no matter how good it looked, a few days later, a few weeks later, however long, he'd hear this crash, crash, as the command strips would give out and whatever they were holding up would fall to the ground. They weren't strong enough to hold the weight. And rather than learn his lesson, he said he would just go get another one and try again. Well, maybe that one just had bad sticky on it. I don't know. Let's try this one. And here's what he said. He said, we hang happiness on hooks in the same way that I hung pictures, thinking that our job or our kids or our vacation can bear the weight of our expectation. The problem, though, is that our expectations for happiness are too heavy for the hooks we use. Those little plastic ones are designed for light or temporary weights, but we weigh them down with expectations for deep and lasting happiness. He says, I was slow to learn my lesson, but eventually I figured out what kinds of hooks I needed for heavier pictures. We are much slower to learn what kinds of hooks we can hang heavy expectations on. We keep being shocked when they crash into pieces on the floor. Then we grab the same kind of hook, maybe in a different color this time, and we try again with predictably disappointing results. Next, we try moving the hook to a different location. Same results. And we just keep on going, rarely, if ever, considering whether our hooks are strong enough to support the happiness we expect. And all throughout Ecclesiastes, what the preacher has been doing is showing us that the hooks we use to hang our happiness on aren't strong enough. They can't support the full weight of the joy that we expect and long for. They're not able to hold up true and lasting satisfaction. That's one thing Ecclesiastes does, is it exposes our dissatisfaction with life. It shows us how all these things that we pursue to try to fill the emptiness inside and to give our lives meaning are ultimately just vanity and a striving after the wind. And every time we try to hang our happiness on it, they come crashing to the ground. But the words of the wise, they are like nails firmly fixed. They're strong and secure, and they can hold whatever weight we put on them. They won't let your joy come crashing down. Now, the other picture this phrase can mean 
Commentators say it could either be nails and wood, or it could also mean a picture of tent stakes being firmly driven into the ground. And I love this picture too, because this is a beautiful picture of how God's wisdom can hold us and keep us stable. Even when the winds of life and the storms are trying to blow us over and knock us down, if you've ever gone camping and it's windy out, you know that those tents just want to go everywhere. And if you don't have it staked down, your tent is gone. But he said the words of the wise, they're driven deep into that ground. No matter how gusty that wind is, your tent will hold. Friends, this is what we have in the wisdom of God's word. Now, if you're carefully following, I hope you're asking yourself, why does he keep saying this wisdom is from God? We're just talking about wisdom here. Good question. That's how you should ask. Well, look where these wise words come from in verse 11. They are given by one shepherd. So who is this shepherd? Well, most likely this is God himself. God is the one constantly referred to throughout the Old Testament as the shepherd of Israel. We are called the sheep of his pasture. And we know already that wisdom comes from God because the preacher told us that back in chapter 2, verse 26. He said, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom. So the point here in these words is that wisdom is not just suggestions from the latest guru. He says these are words of authority given by God himself. And that's why they can give us such security. Because the word of the Lord stands forever, firmly fixed in the heavens. In the book of Ecclesiastes, what we have is our shepherd's authoritative wisdom for how to live this life under the sun. This is not just one more approach among many. Like, I, I'm going to hear what... Ecclesiastes has to say that I'm going to go home and read a couple other books, watch some videos online, and just kind of see, pick and choose, make my own. He says, this is the way of wisdom. It's how we follow our shepherd. Now, we should say one more thing, of course, about this one shepherd. There are only two other places in the Old Testament that use that exact phrase, one shepherd. Ezekiel 34 in Ezekiel 37. I want you to listen to these. Ezekiel 34, 24 says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Ezekiel 37. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. So do you hear these promises? God is promising that someday he would set up one shepherd over his people. The shepherd would be a son of David. He would be a king to rule over them. And the people would walk in this shepherd's rules. And they would obey his statutes. And the people would dwell safely in the promised land under this king's rule forever. Later the prophet Micah would prophesy about this same shepherd in Micah 5. When he says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Friends, what we celebrate at Christmas is that the one shepherd has come. The Jesus who was born in Bethlehem is the same Jesus who said, I am the good shepherd, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. At Christmas, we celebrate the wonder that our shepherd, our one shepherd, came into this world of heaven. That he left a world free from heaven. And he came into this broken mess of a world. The word of wisdom became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Our shepherd came to seek and save his lost sheep and carry us back to his fold rejoicing. And now he leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And we, when we wander, because we wander, he uses his word like goads to spur us back into the right way. And he uses his wisdom to secure us and keep us in the right path all the way home. Friends, this is the precious gift we have in God's word. That's where our shepherd speaks to us the words of the wise. And that brings us to our last section then. Because these words of the wise are given by the one shepherd, we must respond to them the right way. So here in the last three verses, the editor gives us three parting words to show us the way of wisdom. First, he says... Beware of substitutes. Beware of substitutes. Look at verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, some of you students are probably saying amen and like, are trying to like figure out how you can send this verse to your teacher. But it's actually not speaking against books or study or learning. What he's warning us here is of trying to go beyond the words of our shepherd to find wisdom. When he says, of anything beyond these, what's the these? Well, look at the context. It's the words of the wise given by the one shepherd. He's saying, look, there's an endless number of books out there. And in case you're wondering, last year there was about four million new ones put out. So if you take that every year, let's just be conservative and say a million new books every year, you will exhaust yourself trying to keep up with the latest idea of this is wisdom. Every book that comes out is selling you some kind of wisdom, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, whether it's self-help or marriage or finance or business or biography. There's a message and somewhere in there they're saying this is the right way to understand life. This is the way to look at the world. This is how everything works. And it says if you just try to keep up and say, okay, I'm going to learn all the wisdom, he says, you will be weary in your flesh. 
You'll be exhausted if you try to keep up with the latest and greatest wisdom out there. Let's try to say, okay, that one's not it. That one's better. No, I like that one. Don't be like the people Paul warned about in 2 Timothy 3 who were always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. He says, and he says it so affectionately. He says, beware, my son. It's as though this older man is speaking to a younger man saying, listen, I love you. So beware of anything beyond God's word. Don't think you need more than the Bible to have all the wisdom you need. God's word is enough. And I want you to see, do you notice how the editor is actually giving us basically a doctrine of scripture in these verses? Verse 11, he told us that his word has authority because it is given by God himself. So the word is authoritative. Now verse 12, he says that this word is also sufficient. It's enough for all the wisdom we need to navigate life under the sun. So if you're wondering, is it okay then to read other books? Absolutely. Of course. In fact, please do. (laughs) Please read other books. But the point is, never substitute. Never look beyond the Bible, saying the Bible, it doesn't give me all that I need for the wisdom to navigate this world. The Bible is enough. So when you want wisdom, look to God's word. Accept nothing less and demand nothing more. You don't have to keep up with all the books that are made, but you do have to keep in the one book our shepherd gave us. The call is to pay more attention to it than to all the other books combined. Then in verse verse 13, we come to the summation of Ecclesiastes' message. So what would this divinely inspired editor say is the whole point of the book? Look at verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. In other words, when you look at life and really boil it down to what's at the core of living a life of joy and meaning, it comes down to just two things. So do you want to be happy? Do you want to live a life worth living? Here's what you need to do. Fear God and keep his commandments. So let's look at those. We've talked about fearing God throughout the book. Chapter 3, verse 14 told us that whatever God does, right after he says there's a season, a time for everything, and a season for everything under heaven, he says whatever God does, he does it so that people fear before him. Chapter 5, verse 7 said God is the one we must fear. Chapter 7, verse 18 said we should fear God both in good times and in bad times, for the one who fears God shall come out from them both. And in chapter 8, verse 12, we're told it will be well with those who fear God because they fear him. So the preacher, this is the theme that the editor is saying, yes, I, I picked up on what he was saying. Yes, he's talking about the fear of God is significant. And once again, we've said this every time, but this fear is not a cowering. It's not a dread. It's, it's standing in awe of who God is. It's not just... It's not playing games. 
God isn't just a, a folk tale or a myth on, the, on par with Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. He's, he's real. And he's, he's a consuming fire. It's taking God seriously as the creator of everything that exists, the sustainer of all, the ruler over everything, and it's seeing him as the most important thing in our lives. It's having that Copernican revolution where instead of seeing ourselves at the center of life with God kind of revolving around us, we recognize, no, 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 he's at the center of everything and I'm just a little planet revolving around him. We fear God by trusting him and leaning not on our own understanding. We fear God by delighting in his commandments. We fear him by embracing and treasuring his forgiveness. It's Psalm 130, right? Psalm 130 verse 4 says, With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And when we fear God, Psalm 112 tells us that we will be able to keep every other fear in perspective. It says, the one who fears God is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Friends, fearing God is living like God really is the sovereign creator and the compassionate state. And when we fear God like this, it always leads to the second thing, keeping his commandments. See, these are not two unrelated ideas. He didn't just reach into his grab bag of things he could say and put these two together. In the Bible, these are always linked. Deuteronomy 8.6 says, You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. So how do you keep the commandments of the Lord? By fearing him. How do you fear the Lord? By keeping his commandments. Fearing God is the attitude that leads to the action of keeping his commandments. So if we say that we fear God, but don't do what he says, we're just faking it. And that needs to be said. I had a conversation with a Christian leader recently who was astonished that I would actually say that, you know, there are some people who would profess to be Christians but who don't live like Christians, and therefore I have no reason to, to think of them as a Christian. He's got, okay. And the same is true for churches. That if churches deviate from the faith once handed down to the saints, in no meaningful sense can they be called a church. Why? Because if we fear God, we will keep his commandments. And if we don't, you can say all day long, I fear God, but you deny him by your works. Keeping his commands is how we demonstrate that we really do fear him in our hearts. And if you flip it around the same way, if you try to just follow the rules, if you scour the Bible, say, all right, what do I got to do? And I try to be obedient and good, but you don't revere him in your heart, you're not actually keeping his commandments. We must fear God and keep his commandments. This is what we were made for. When it says this is the whole duty of man, the word duty really isn't even there. Literally, it says this is the whole of man. In other words, this is why we exist. We were made to worship and obey God. That's the point of life. 
That's where joy and purpose and meaning and satisfaction is found because we were created to live with God as our king and to joyfully live under his good rule. I hope you feel just how radical this is in every day, but especially in ours. Because the world is telling you the exact opposite. That for you to be truly alive, to really live life, you must submit to no one else's rule and obey only your own heart. In fact, there's even another king telling you this. When I watch football with my girls, they love when the Burger King commercial comes on. And I, I should have them sing it. They, and they sing along at BK, have it your way, you rule, right? And it's catchy, but it's dead wrong. The message of Ecclesiastes is that living that way with yourself at the center will leave you frustrated, unsatisfied, and facing God's judgment. The right way to live is every day, do it God's way, he rules right? Or, thank you, thank you, or to put it another way, fear God and keep his commandments. He closes the book then with a reminder of why this all matters. Look at verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, people often get squeamish when the word judgment gets brought up. But do you realize that this is what actually gives life meaning? If there was no God, and therefore there was no judgment, what would be the point of all this hevel, of all this brokenness? Life would still be just as broken, just as confusing, just as short, but now there'd be no point. There'd be no judge to bring justice to every evil and no judge to reward every good. There'd be no final evaluation. There'd be no standard of right and wrong. There'd be no king ruling over all these occurrences, just everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes and turning to their own ways. But Ecclesiastes reminds us there will be a judgment and every deed will be judged every single thing we've done every word we've said every decision we've made we will be held accountable for how we've lived the life that God has entrusted to us and nothing will be hidden every secret thing will be exposed before the eyes of the judge now, if you are here and you don't fear the Lord and you don't trust in Jesus, this should be the most terrifying reality there is. Your nightmare scenario is not losing your job. It's not losing your life. It's not losing the life of a loved one. It's not having a debilitating illness. The worst reality for you is that one day the creator king will judge you for how you spent the life he's given you. And the bad news is there's no one who's innocent. We are all guilty of going our own way. And there is one and only one defense we can offer when we stand before the judge. And that is, Jesus paid it all. 
And if we don't have him as our defense, we have no hope and face an eternity of misery that will make the worst of this world's brokenness seem like paradise. So friend, hear this warning and come to Jesus. And for those of you who have come to Jesus, this promise of judgment, this promise of judgment is the best news ever. Because we no longer have to fear the judgment because not only has our shepherd come, he's taken our judgment and was judged in our place for our sins. So by faith in him, we are forgiven and redeemed. And we don't fear judgment because the judge on the throne is the shepherd who was on the cross and the king who is at the Father's right hand. And one day this same Jesus will come back again and judge the living and the dead. He will come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And he'll come to bring never-ending joy to the world as he rules with truth and grace. So, are you waiting in your sorrows for this broken world to heal? He is coming, soon returning. Rest in him. And until that day, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the way of wisdom and the whole duty of man. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you loved us enough to give us wisdom. So I pray now that you would also give us the ability to heed this wisdom, to live it out, to walk in the way of wisdom. God, we, are, we confessed it earlier, we are prone to wander. So would you graciously keep bringing us back to the path of wisdom? Help us from departing and seeking out our own ways that are dead-end destructions. Father, we thank you that because of Jesus, this life can have meaning and purpose and value and that it's not just confusion and chaos and meaninglessness. So God, I pray for those here who don't know you. I pray that they would see that there is no other answer, that only the creator can unlock the mysteries of this life. And I pray that they would come to you, not just as their creator, but as their savior and king. And God, I pray for us who have done that already, that you would give us fresh joy in the fact that we know the God who is over all. And this God loved us enough to come for us. And he came for us to save us and so that he could bring joy, not judgment. <laughs> so God, we delight in that truth and we pray that this Advent season and as we approach Christmas, you would fill us with that joy and you would cause that joy to overflow from us out into the world around us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.